Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of our show sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Mentorship is 20 hours of top class online video strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Secondly, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Thirdly, I want to give a huge shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Athlete Concepts. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Athlete Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation educational material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beast, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent continuing educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, you can check out the show notes to get links to all the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and the Altus Foundation Coaching Course, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before today's interview, I just wanted to let all listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel like you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you would be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling. Let's get into today's interview. Hey guys, just before I introduce today's guest, I want to bring it to your awareness that the Irish Strength Institute will be hosting their annual symposium on the 28th and 29th of July at the Grand Hotel in Malahide in Dublin, Ireland. Now, the lineup that the ISI team put together for this symposium is absolutely outstanding. Some of the speakers that will be presenting at the symposium will be Dr. Eric Serrano, Dr. Ken Kanakin, the founder of the Swiss Conference, Victoria Felker, Alexandro Ferretti, as well as legendary coach Isvan Javorik. Yes, the godfather of barbell complexes, as well as a host of other outstanding speakers that you can find out about when you go to the registration page. Now, as listeners of this podcast, the ISI is offering you guys a 50 euro discount when you register for the event. The link along with the discount code and all of the event details will be linked up in the show notes. Thanks, guys. And we're back. Pat and I are back with part four in our Mass 2 series. Make sure you head over to the show notes to check out part one, two, and three. On this episode, Pat gives us an update on what's new. Pat fills us in about his hope to open his own facility one day and also speaks about a power metric to measure an individual's work output in their training sessions. 
Pat fills us in on his upcoming speaking engagements that he had coming up at the time of this recording. Pat and I discuss the design of the programs that make up the 16 weeks of Mass 2. Here we discuss the 30-30 day and the alactic aerobic day of phase 1. Pat tells us why trying to use percentages with the 30-30 protocol is pretty much useless. Pat tells us why he still loves the 30-30 and why he loves Cal Dietz's triphasic model which he utilizes within the first three phases of Mass 2. Pat discusses the sensory input benefits from utilizing triphasic training. Pat and I discuss dynamic systems theory, quantitative versus qualitative overload, overloading the perception and cognitive systems, and the need to increase variation as athletes reach higher levels of mastery or higher levels of qualification. Pat and I discuss how certainty and dopamine reward can have a negative effect on adaptation as it can decrease variation, which in turn decreases the robustness of an organism. Pat gets into a deep discussion on post-activation potentiation. And finally, I asked Pat why he uses a glycolytic warm-up on his alactic aerobic day. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Pat, and I hope you really enjoy it. Davidson, we are live, sir. We are back for part four. Currently, part one has just been released, and the feedback has been unbelievable. So before we get into part four, just give us a little bit of update in the world of Pat Davidson. Let's let's try not to take like a half hour and then we get into the show because we only have about like an hour and twenty minutes now, and for us that's quite short in time. But yeah, that's uh, nothing. Yeah, give us a little little rundown on what's new with Pat. And actually, something I meant to ask you offline, and maybe you can ramble on it just for a minute is. You were saying on some other podcasts you were maybe hoping to go with your own facility some stage. Is that kind of taking a back seat now and just go more with the consultancy speaking and just doing your personal training? No, that's that's not on a back seat whatsoever. Um, you know, uh, again, kind of like the the thing I'm working on is 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 a methodology that can score a resistance training workout uh, so that that you can leave and it, it'll work with power, but. It's it's a situation where if you go through any kind of workout, all of the reps that you do in the entire workout will have the power of that repetition measured. Yeah. But then it, it's going to put all of the reps together so that we get a very good idea of as essentially uh, mixed mixed exercise, mixed position, whatever you want to call it, uh, your overall amount of power that you created in the weight room. Uh, so it, to me, it's kind of like... It's, it's just the next step in the way that sports science is kind of going. You know, we put GPS on athletes and we see how many meters they run in a certain meters per second range. And we put pitch counts on baseball players or, or pitchers and we see how many pitches they throw at different velocities and of different kind. And, and I think uh, in this particular case, it's just a more accurate way to assess weight room for the overall stress load that someone is under. Uh, so that we can begin to know like what is the critical amount of total total work, but but more accurately total power that someone is creating, um, and and what is you know what is the minimum that someone can do to still lead towards maximal adaptations. Uh, you know I, I think it's got a, a, a limitless kind of possibility, but you know we, we've we've got some some really good opportunities that are lining themselves up in New York City. And I think that that thing is going to to breathe its first breath of air and come to life in the next maybe six to eight months. It looks like. Um, and, and tell me this: is is this? Are you looking to build 
like a system to measure these metrics from scratch or is there something already out there that you're hoping to incorporate it's basically taking stuff that's already out there and adding a new twist on it okay yeah, um, yeah. like like and, sort of like sort of like my zone but with more sort of metrics added to it so not not really my zone, just you know, because my zone simply a, a, oh, that, a, bio, I, a biomarker. Yeah, but I know I, what you're, I mean, I know what you're yeah, saying. something yeah. like that, but with more obviously more of the metrics that you want. Yeah, I don't want to go too crazy with metrics because all of a sudden you've got eighty bazillion variables and nobody knows what's important. Just going to take one variable to start off with power, power, and yeah. uh, and and run with that and just see how much total power you're creating in your in your weight room training session. So when and you wait, when you say power now, are you talking like watts output? Yeah, watts. Okay. That's one, yeah. Okay. Um, so so that's 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 getting closer and closer and, and that is probably above and beyond everything else I've got going on in my life, the number one pursuit. Um, but you know, I, I, I like having a lot of things going on. So so I'm doing I'm doing a lot in, in the way of like uh, Speaking engagements coming up, you know, the, the next few that I've got uh, next weekend, February 10th and 11th, I'm giving the Rethinking the Big Patterns seminar in uh, in northern New Jersey at Mike what, Baker's place. What, what, pants, what pants are you wearing for that one? You know, I've actually got body paint that I'm going to go with. <laughs> On, on this one um so you know you can't you can't it was close with the reckoning part one but i'm just gonna go straight uh, straight body paint brilliant. now i apologize like, I, I apologize to listeners who ear whose earbuds i just like erupted there with that laughter but for anyone who has not seen the reckoning and this absolute picturesque human species with these absolutely wonderful pants it's uh it's something to behold it's worth the price of the video oh, it's just for the pants yeah um yeah. So yeah, I've got I've got uh, that coming up next weekend in February. Uh, next stuff coming up, I'm going to be in um, in April. I've got uh, uh, I'm speaking at, at PRI's interdisciplinary integration, and I'll be talking about uh, examining really like evolution of archaic human beings, like like uh, like our our ancestors, so to speak. Uh, Paleolithic humans, uh, Neolithic humans, and post-industrial humans. You know, I'm, just I'm waiting for the day where you just do a presentation on like something so basic, squatting, and you're like, "What? That doesn't sound like Davidson at all." Yeah, I mean, I, I do that uh, on a weekly basis at the at the gym that I work in in New York City, where I have trainers from from New York City come in and and attend, and I just cover the most basic stuff imaginable. Cool, yeah. I, I actually just did did the deadlift two weeks ago so it's it's you know I, I i will go very basic as well but uh I, I don't know like like you can get that from a million people oh, so. listen, i'm only i'm only i'm only fucking yanking your chain because i'd be like you too like it's just like you know is it like like guys give all these presentations on like stuff like that and you're just like i want to like like you know people are like, oh keep it simple like no don't keep it simple keep it fucking yeah as diverse as complex as fuck let's get into this rabbit hole and let's keep going down yep. all these wormholes so i love it i'm just fucking messing with you oh yeah i mean I, I i get i get that it's it's just sort of like i i still see some value in in that oh yeah there is um, it's, it's always it, context and time dependent yeah and, and yep. then the situation definitely but yeah i think i think um I'm very excited about this evolutionary material that mm, I'm going to get into. Mm, you know, I, I think that it's stuff that I'm I'm going to also be be talking a lot about that material in May at um, 
at Mike Ranfone's place again, where Ben House and I are going to be delivering the Reckoning Part Two. Ranfone again. He's the man for yep. posting these things. That'll be the first weekend in May. Brilliant. Uh, the weekend after that in in May as well. There's going to be. It, it looks like I think it's setting up. I, I'm pretty sure. I, I feel pretty comfortable being able to announce it'll be uh, Stu McGill, Joel Jameson, and myself in New York City. Um, you know, I'll be doing Friday, and then I think it'll be Joel on Saturday and McGill on Sunday. When is but, that? Um, when is that? Are you, are you thinking? I believe that's going to be the the second weekend in May in New York City. Oh wow! So that's coming off the back of Ben, is it? Yeah. Wow, that's going to be a fantastic uh, two weeks there. Um, you know, af- after that stuff, uh, you know, I also in April I'm going to be heading down to South Carolina, uh, Coastal Carolina University. There's a uh, an ISSN talk that I'm going to be involved with, with a bunch of other PhDs, including Jason Kaliwa, who's organizing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in, in that particular presentation, I'm going to be chronicling all of the data that was collected on um, on a young guy who went through Mass 2. Uh, the, the presentation that the Chinese didn't want. That is correct. Them, this is the them, presentation them, that no one in China wanted to hear about. Them fuckers. So, yeah. So yeah, it's uh you know that that's gonna be unveiled there, and I, I think that's actually a, a pretty cool presentation because we tracked everything on him. Yeah, you're saying that. Um, yeah, uh, and and he actually just competed in a powerlifting contest, and he was kind of saying that his his big goal that he wanted to get to in the next couple of years was a fifteen hundred pound total, and he already just smashed that. Brilliant, so, brilliant. Um, and uh, Australia. Uh, so yeah, it looks like I'm gonna be giving the big patterns presentation. It's it's going international. Uh, in March, I'll be delivering it in um, in Vancouver, Canada, and then in July, I've got I've got something lined up with uh, in Thailand to give it there. And I'm hoping to be able to turn that trip. Uh, it'll be July, I believe, 14th and 15th in Thailand, and then. Hopefully the next weekend, the 21st, 22nd, would be in, in Australia on one coast. Great, and the great. following weekend would be in Australia on the other coast. So uh, the, the, the southern hemisphere is, is hopefully going to get a nice dose of this thing. Um, and then it, it looks like I got one of those lined up for, for Kentucky. Uh, I'm going to speak in, in Kentucky at the NSCA seminar down there and also Tennessee a big patterns presentation. So, you know, it's 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 starting to um it's starting to get a little crazy, but make, I like that. Make sure when you go to Thailand now that you bring a fan and that you oh my and, God, and, yeah. and, that, and that and that you don't end up uh, almost being molested by an Asian hooker. <laughs> and, and, and make sure make sure you yeah. make, make sure you get the definite cost for the massage this time. Oh man, yeah, I got to avoid jungle rot number one, but but in particular, uh, you know, the, the the basically jungle rot where the thorax and pelvis meet. Uh, that's absolutely. the most. That's the most critical. And uh, also, like uh, Costa Rica, I'm going down there again with, with Ben House in uh, in June. So in, he's got. So has he got one on a march with uh, Dr. Brian Walsh? That, that is correct. Yeah, yeah he's got yeah, a, yeah. A, a week of functional medicine. That's gonna uh, be amazing. And he's got a week of, of nutrition, and he'll also have Dr. Mike T. Nelson down there as oh, well for amazing, that. Amazing, amazing. So great. big, big things popping. Great stuff. All right. Well, people listen to this now that they'll hopefully they enjoy their introduction there and uh, 
getting to uh, getting to hear what's going on currently with uh, with yourself. But I suppose as well they want to get into this part four now of Mass Two. So what we're getting into today, Pat, is the actual programs. So uh, with the four days um, that were within each week, we're just going to go through those and break them down, and then we'll go through phase by phase. And however far we get with the time we have is however far we get. So sure. so the first uh, day, so we're here in Chapter 8 in the book, um, Phase 1, and the title of this is I'm Back. And fuck, mm. and fuck me, it is back. So... <laughs> Day uh, day one of uh, phase one is a so just for the listeners who we have one and a half developmental days. Uh, uh, so we have two developmental days, but we'll, we'll explain what we mean by one and a half. We have a, a lactic aerobic day and a stim day, so we'll be going through all these. The order is developmental day, a lactic aerobic stim, and then your your half developmental day. So we'll be going through all these. So day one is the thirty thirty, the the, the famous thirty thirty from mass one. I suppose mm-hmm. we probably don't have too much maybe to touch on here, but obviously you couldn't uh, you couldn't leave this out of mass too. So let's start right there on thirty thirty developmental. Yeah, and you know before I get into that, I, I also just want to to mention the fact that um, you know the New England Patriots are going to be going up against the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl tomorrow, and um, and and I feel like I would be making a huge mistake. If I didn't tell you the story of Malcolm Butler intercepting the ball against the Seahawks in the goal line, because <laughs> I, you know, uh, I, I feel like I'm having some senior moments these days, and it's like you tell the same stories over and over again, and and that to me, I was like kind of dying inside on the last one, where you're like, ah, uh, yeah. By the way, you already told this same story in the first one of these it's it's so, so it's, I, I just it's so funny I, you mentioned it's so funny you mentioned that because before i hopped on to our call today i'm listening back to our factory and i just yeah. i just finished on that part before i hopped on to the call and i was like he's uh, he better mention the patriots again today because your, your last statement was he says and this will be uh, an ongoing team an ongoing team basically i'm, I'm paraphrasing but this will be an ongoing team where i will continue to mention the patriots at least one to three times throughout this podcast series so, you know, I want to make sure I stay very consistent on that front. Consistency is key, uh, which is a great segue into Mass 2 mm. and speaking about how the 3030 is going to come back again. Uh, it's, it's almost like, you know, phase, phase one of Mass 1 is just the ultimate, like, punch in the dick for most people. Like, it's, it's just, it humbles you so quickly. Because it's, it's not like you're going to be lifting the heaviest weights you've ever lifted. It's not like you're going to be doing the longest duration workout you've ever done. But there's something truly evil about doing sets of 15. And it, the, the timing of that thing is just absolutely terrible. Uh, so, you know, I, I know that we, we talked in part one about how, how Mike Boyle was a big influence on on the way that this actually came together in some ways. And, and he's been a big influence on my entire way of thinking. So when, when I, one of the statements that I think Boyle has, has made over the, over the years is that uh, Paul Aquin had a tremendous article on program design that he, that he wrote a while ago. And, and one of the key phrases in that is that good training is the same, but different. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that's a brilliant statement that I've gone back to in my head over and over again. And, and we also talked about influences on me coming from Charlie Francis. And, and I remember in, in something that Charlie wrote, um, you know, it, it sort of said that 
that successful training uh, logs or, or, or plans are like a history lesson. And you can kind of keep going back to those over and over again. So it, long story short, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that will throw out something that works just for the sake of novelty. Um, you know, I want a workout that fits kind of my thought process for what a developmental day should be. And developmental days, to me, should feature something that involves mechanical loading in a range that is sufficient to be able to disrupt the, the physical properties of, of cell structures, of, of uh, you know, cytoskeleton proteins, and, and challenge the, the ability of contractile proteins to be able to, to maintain their integrity with one another. And, and also simultaneously be able to deliver uh, a metabolic threat on the heat and acidity front. And, and the 3030 does exactly that. And, and I, the other elements of the 3030 that I like so much is that the, the sheer number of exercises provides a variability element mm-hmm. to it. Spreads, which I view spread, as, spreads the stress out, which you said, which is a good thing. Exactly. And, um, and the load is, is just very light. So it's, it's not going to – I don't think it will challenge necessarily like the, the integrity of your skeleton. Um, but it hits all the other elements and I just look at like, uh, you know, I'm going to probably challenge your, your metabolic tolerance before I necessarily challenge your load bearing tolerance. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love that workout. Why throw that thing out just because it was in mass one. It's a great day one experience. Like it sets the tone. Just with, in terms of, uh, recommendations with, um, with with intensities to start with in terms of loading like obviously well not obviously but i'm assuming you recommend to obviously start too like too light then obviously go too heavy and like is yeah. there is there any recommendations or is there any like strategies or like guidelines you might be able to give on like where maybe to where a good place to start i i'm sure like getting like the first session is kind of a feeder of oh that was too light or that was too heavy and you can kind of gauge yeah. it there and then from the second session onwards it's already 30 you kind of know where you're at but is there any like strategies you go with or like say, like if you are doing yeah. deadlift bench, like see, I can't really, like I was just saying, the percentages, but like percentages are so like there's so much difference from one individual to another. Throw them out, and then if yeah. you're talking like about a man versus a woman, like sure, it's fucking way different as well. Like so, is it yeah. just is it just basically just gauge, have your best guess, and, and go at it, and then after the first session, kind of gauge from there. You know, I think that something I said to Ben once helped him a lot with it, where I, I just said like. Uh, cause he was like, what percentages do you go with? Like, you know, and I was like, honestly, I just view the whole thing as one exercise. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't I, like it's, so it's, it's kind of like, and I don't know why that clicked for him and it clicks for me, but it, it just does. It's sort of like you can, you can, some people skew it a little differently. Like they'll, they'll make the deadlift really heavy or like if you push one, you're going to have to pull another so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so I can, I can just, I've, I've run, I've got, I, I kind of have one client that I think of that's sort of my litmus test for a lot of things. And, and he's, he's a big Guinea pig for, for a lot of the ideas I come up with quite honestly. Does he actually know, does he actually know he's a Guinea pig or, or like, yeah, are you just saying that? Cause you know, he's never going to hear. No, I, I've, I've, I've told him, but he doesn't actually believe me. And so, but um, I, was, I was just about to say to you, as you were just mentioning this person in my head popped, like, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, because I've had, you know, two or three or four, or however many kind of 
uh, athletes of clients for the years where you're like you're a guinea pig and I, yeah. it, 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 I, two or three guys come straight to my mind now where I'm always like they, they're all, and they, they actually knew it but they loved like the experiment so anyway continue so this guy's 58 years old and um, you know I, I just think that and he's trained you know what I mean he's he's at a pretty high level of his own possibilities in terms of training status so if anything works on this guy I know that if I introduce this stuff to people in their 20s, 30s, like they're going to explode on it. Um, so it's that like it's it's just a very interesting thing because almost nothing actually works and causes like uh, any level of of improvement in metrics on this guy at this point. And, like I mean, he could do a few things differently. Like uh, I'm always trying to get him to just eat some more food, but he likes to look good on the beach in Miami and. He gets a little bit nervous of ever getting like adding any body fat to himself, so it's it's tough to convince him to do that to to drive some other adaptations. But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, I think that his level of consistency with the way that he eats is actually even more telling in some ways as to whether or not the training is going to be uh, a difference maker. So uh, you know, I'm always I'm always just seeing like what's the best combination of things that can possibly change this guy's numbers to any any possible degree um and and really like kind of the way that that mass two came together was this really this the blend that i started putting together for him is what eventually like and then i was trying it and i was like oh man this is this is a really nice nice uh nice blend of these things the, the express the, the expression that comes to mind is nom, 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 nom. yeah <laughs> that's I, that's how I describe it. Oh, this is. I don't. Never- I don't even know how I know what that means, but I know what that means. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but you know, I, I, like I, I want to make sure I stay to point. So I, I want to make sure that I, I know where, where you want me to go with with this this particular line of discussion, because I feel like I'm I'm losing my my reference or frame of of, of thought here. No, no, you're good. Um, you were talking about but keep, I, like keep if something's good, why throw it out and like variation yeah. will change. That's where we're at. So we're, yeah. we're still on point. Okay, so you know, just in in terms of designing phase one, it's it's kind of like I'm I'm not throwing that thing out. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful workout. I just sometimes you just look at something and you just see like for me, I'm just like looking at this at like a human organism going through a particular protocol. And it just looks like something that's going to make an, this this particular species have to adapt. Like it's it's it looks right to me. I, I kind of see it like the thirty thirty kind of carried over mass one. Like it's like an offspring. And it's like and then like this and like the the, the subsequent uh, sessions throughout the week, like the a lactic uh, aerobic, the the stim and, and the other and the the uh, Cajun, which we shall get to. It's like they're the offspring of the second generation. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good way to, to look at it. Um, you know, in, in diving into the other days, uh, you know, it's just simply like day two with being that aerobic alactic. Uh, it's it's just kind of straight from from Cal Dietz's triphasic training. And I get, get into why you like that, because and again, listen, Pat. Like, I mean, if 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 mm-hmm. if uh, if this takes us an hour to go through, even just like this part, I don't care, because again, we can shoot uh, record as many as you want. So don't feel that you have to be rushed or anything like that. Sure. But uh, like, I, I liked your and you actually got really deep in the actual alactic aerobic chapter. You got deep into the physiology behind why you picked that particular day in terms of you know really making those alactic outputs you know, a, a, a lactic as they can be in terms of the power output. And then 
you know, when you're aerobic, you're aerobic. And why, we kind of spoke about in the previous podcast, why, you know, developing that aerobic system is so important from an energetic standpoint in terms of not just performance, but longevity. So, I mean, maybe, mm. maybe touch on the points of why you felt like sort of including the triphasic set from Calvitz into this program was, was something you felt was warranted and, and why you like it so much. Because you, you do speak quite highly of, of the protocol in the book. All right, yeah, so I, I think let's let's dive into this, baby. Uh, reasons that I like uh, block one of triphasic training, which is eccentric focused over 80% load. Uh, I w- let's, let's start by number one from a biomechanics standpoint. Uh, I don't I think that one of the holes in mass one was that there wasn't enough eccentric or isometric, elements to it you know yeah. mass one is, a, is is as much a psychological program as it is a physiology program mm-hmm. and and you can't cover everything in any program but i think that you're a very it's a very concentric oriented program in a lot of ways uh ver, and and so i think that to be able to really lead someone towards optimal development you have to identify what you're not doing as much as what you are doing. And then you have to start filling in those holes of what you're not doing. Uh, So I I think that giving someone other contractile methods is really important to be able to make sure that you're covering all your bases. And and from a biomechanics standpoint, you know, I kind of break biomechanics down into a couple of different realms. I think you have kinematics, kinetics, but also I think that what we've forgotten or, or left out of biomechanics is sensory. And, and I say that because it's the first part of it is bio. If there was no bio in biomechanics, I think that it would be fine to just have it be kinetics and kinematics. But I think that the sensory component of biomechanics is something that is the harder question because it's more difficult to measure and it's, it's kind of a nebulous area. But I, I think that people get better at things when they develop a better feel for those things. Uh, you know, in a lot of sports, you, you know, we, we had deflate gate in the NFL as a, as a major topic. And, and it's kind of like Tom Brady likes the feel of the football when it's slightly more deflated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basketball players, they, you know, they just weren't feeling it on a good night, on a bad night where they're, they're not making their shots. Uh, elite athletes rely on, on a sense or a feel to be at their best. And if you want to get better at anything, you have to improve the way that the thing feels to you. Your perception is probably going to drive the output uh, to a tremendous degree. So, and also just spending more time in areas, uh, in, the, in particular ranges of motion. You can't learn anything unless you're going slow. Uh, you can't feel anything unless you're going slow. So people are going to learn how to squat heavier and and learn how to feel a heavy squat much more effectively with that particular strategy being put into the program as well. And so I, I think that just biomechanics is is going to be covered to a greater degree by including that that tempo eccentric. Um, you're gonna feel when you're in position, when you're out of position. Hopefully you can actually improve the the mechanics of the squat the the actual kinetics and the kinematics of the squat Mm -hmm. but just as importantly hopefully you can improve the sensory experience that you've got with the squat as well and uh just uh, so just for listeners too so you prescribed five sets to 88 percent is that correct 
Yeah, uh, we, uh, we went with a range of 80 to 88% eight, in it, yeah. so that, it says you know, over, people... Yeah, we're over 80%, but in the actual program, it has 80, 88, but just, uh, so... I think we, I, that got edited eventually, and it, mm. it does, it should say 80 to 88%. Okay. Like, I mean, to tell you the truth, when I'm doing that thing, I do it as heavy as I possibly can, Yeah. and I see if I can finish all five sets... This, with the weight that I'm using. This, and if this, I did, I'm going heavier next time. And this is why I'm having this conversation. Cause this is like the intricate details about the problem that I want to hear. So yeah, five, it's yeah. it says here in the, on the, in the manuscript you gave me, obviously it was before I got it, five sets to at 88, but uh, so now we've heard it's 80 to 88%. With a six-second yeah. six eccentric. Now, just for the listeners who are familiar, or, or even not familiar with with, um, with uh, triphasic, you did include the friends cr- contrast method with this and what I actually liked uh, what you did here to make it practical, because obviously you, you you know you're probably writing this in, with 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 the sort of idea in the back of your mind that you know some people mightn't have all the essential logistics to be able to complete French contrast the way Kyle did. So I like mm-hmm. what I like what you done here. You did the squat, um, and then you pair that up with a box squat, uh, a jump squat of weight, which you know most places have. But then you went with a long jump, whereas Kyle would usually go with an assisted squat, like we hold a band or something like to unload yourself. Yep. And the reason he gave for that, and I actually quite liked it, was you were saying with a horizontal jump, you felt there was that that you could probably create a little more velocity because of because uh, more gravity vertically than act on the body horizontally. So you felt that you could actually have a higher velocity output. But I love the book. You're like, I'm just, I'm just yeah, like really just thinking about this right here, right now. I, I think this could work. So I kind of like the rationale. Whether whether that's true or not, now I, I actually don't know. Uh, but it, I, I kind of like the way like when I was reading, I was like, oh, that's actually a very interesting point. Yeah, I mean, if if you're not going straight, I mean, gravity only goes in one direction. Yeah. So I, I just feel like if you're going horizontal, it's slightly less of a direct fight against gravity. Yeah. So I would just picture that as being slightly lightened in my mind. So, you know, best case scenario in a bare bones place where you might not have the ability to, to lighten a vertical jump. But if you can lighten a vertical jump, Probably best case scenario. Do you know something, uh, if you, let's say if you had a partner or someone that, that could spot you, a really good way to lighten vertical jump is that as you jump, they kind of push it as you go up. Mm, like hands-on hips. Yeah. I almost look at the importance of it, though, is on the landing. I was just about to say that. And the other thing, too, is obviously like when someone's at manual, it's very hard to measure the consistency of it as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I originally – like I definitely want to get into the physiology of post-activation potentiation Fire. because I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Let's go for it. But overall, like – you know, the lightened jumps are something like I, I started doing those things in 2004. Mm. And, you know, it, it, it really started with, um, you know, I, a couple buddies of mine. We took bands, you know, like kind of like West Side Barbell type bands, and we actually hooked them up over a basketball hoop and pulled them down and, and used it so that we could throw alley oops to each other and dunk the ball. And, I remember, you know, we were just messing around and, and we were actually trying to use the bands as like a catapult to launch the basketballs down the floor too. So we were literally just being like complete clowns. And I remember watching this and just thinking to myself, this is a good training method. Yeah. Like if we just hook these things up over a pull-up bar. Uh, so I remember we started doing that and actually training with it back then. And then it became popular a little bit after that, you know, so it, uh, it was just kind of like... Are you fam- are you familiar with D.B. Hammer? The, so some of his writings? Absolutely. I love I love his, his work. So, because yeah. uh, I, I, I had... Like, I've had Chris Corpus on the podcast before, and I had, I have, I've had Dan Victor on, uh, but the, that podcast isn't up yet. That'll be up in a few weeks. 
But uh, and I've spoken to Joel Smith, who who would know those guys well, and he's read DP's work well. But you know, the does uh, they talk about those AMT jumps where you know you're you're being pulled down to the ground faster um, mm-hmm. from, from a depth jump. But the one of the one of the sort of reasons or reasons for uh, the execution of that type of exercise, obviously it's an overload to your organism. So you know, basic overload principle yeah. is one thing. But they were talking about that there's a stimulus to the vestibular system as well. Uh, because mm. the speed you're moving at, so so like Dan Victor was saying that that's an overload to the vestibular system, and it's funny because, and I'd be interested to get your point of view on this maybe in another podcast or at some stage. I'll let you get back now to to pop and try basic, but uh, just plant a seed in your head and you can think about it later. Um, was you know this concept obviously of overload and volume and intensity overloads will only get us so far because obviously like you know the the more advanced you get in terms of your uh, qualification as just an athlete or if you're just someone who lifts you know the volume intensity can only like you can only reach you can only get so far to your potential with that for like i can't handle any more volume intensity now most most of us don't reach that but i'm talking about say elite athletes now yeah and then it seems to be when you get close that the only not the only way but the main way to keep progressing is variation in training or to overload maybe other systems so yeah like variation in training is is an overload to like sensory and brain and nervous system, but see, it's 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 just hard to quantify. Like whereas like volume yeah. intensity is like you can quantify weight to bar and speed and time against, but how can you quantify like was the cortex overloaded with a certain variation? So I was talking to Kevin Can, who is who who's been who has been trained by uh, Boris Shiko for the last number of years, and he basically this is Shiko's whole system is that once athletes get up to like to a, a, a point in their career where like volume intensity just can no longer continue continue to work for them in terms of like reaching higher levels of qualification he's like it's all about variation like minute variations in their main lifts and he's all big into like basically dynamic systems theory and constraint beds led approach and this overload to like the the cortex and neurological systems and like overloading more things like uh now not so much from chico but just going back to that victor their thing was like like overloading like areas of like sensory mode or perception vestibular mm-hmm. and vision so they're, they're big, he's that's the only thing Dan Victor's big and he's like like start training vision he's like the eye muscles are the most undertrained muscles of the body so again going back to like all the sensory systems the body has to get input to the brain it's like we, we're always constantly training like the muscle the muscular aspect of true volume intensity like we start forgetting about like vestibular eyesight like other sensory systems that need to be overloaded and he says they're probably where we need to go for next extra variation of training so it's just very interesting that the whole yeah. the whole assisted jumps maybe think about like training vestibular system. So that got me on that. I would have to listen to their arguments more specifically. I like it. But, I like but your to me, opinion. to me, what what's what's happening here is a different explanation. Go ahead. And and to me, what what happens with training is that you become more and more of a dopamine dominated neurotransmitter. Oh, he's individual. back. On, he had these back on the dopamine. And dopamine is going to reduce uh, sensory experience. And, and ultimately, you can only run with that so far. And, and the best way to be able to – you need – like nervous systems ultimately will demand some kind of level of balance, you know. And, and athletes are going to struggle to get sense. You know, like sensory input is going to, to be – more and more difficult for them to find, you know, it's, it's, they're going to, so if, if you, and, and look, there's so many different sensory avenues into the body. And like, let's, if you think about sensory, it is the fastest, uh, 
possible system in our body in the in regards to fatigue. The sensory system is a very fast fatiguing system. And and the concept of nose blindness is is uh, an easy one to think about on that front. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're in a terrible smelling room, if you're in there for seven, eight minutes, at a certain point you don't you can't even notice it anymore. So sensory information needs to be both powerful for you to even begin to register it. And also it needs to be different. It needs change all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that is actually what's, what's happening. Okay. Like they, these athletes have gone so deep down into just motor and output and removal from feeling, because I'll tell you what, if you're going to do tremendously high output stuff, you don't really want to feel that stuff because yeah. it's so heavy. It's so metabolically challenging. You are creating so much force. It's a threat. The more you can not feel that threat. I'll, I'll tell you what, like you go into the literature on fear and threat, the methodology that the nervous system seeks out in response to fear or threat is removal. It's escape that you're looking for. And you can escape that by conditioning yourself to not feel it. But you're it, going to is it, numb it, yourself. It, yeah, like is it, so like what comes to my mind is this, this, this term of, adaptive resistance which is just another way of saying accommodation but tr- like through the training process we, we are trying to dampen down that threat through the brain yeah but at the same time it comes with a consequence oh, yeah. which is that you're going to basically dampen your sensory systems as well and so y- you need mm-hmm. to you need to go into those sensory systems to reawaken them ultimately we're always getting to the brain and at the brain, it's just action potentials. Yeah. Okay. It's an action potential is an action potential is an action potential. And, but what drives those action potentials is that the sensory organelle around the body are sending afferent messages there. The, the problem is, is that they, they reduce their, their afferent sending uh, levels. They're, the magnitude of afferent information being sent back to the brain will be reduced mm-hmm. uh, because you don't want to feel those things at a certain point. So by intro- I have to introduce either error to your system or a level of, of awareness that in, in, it's got to be different. Uh, it's, it's like I'm going into my talk from the reckoning mm-hmm. in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, day yeah. two. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's got to be something that you pick up on. Uh, and you'll always pick up on error and you'll always pick up on novelty. And, and look, like the problem with the modern world is that everything is the friggin' same. Yeah. Everything's the same. Uh, the ground is the same everywhere you go. It's flat. A barbell is a barbell is a barbell. A track is the same surface. It's the same direction. You aren't going to notice these things because they're always the same. But there's in, also in, th- there's also the emotional element to, the, to that to that knowledge of certainty. And then as uh, I'd imagine, then because people get a, a dopamine response, like like so, so like I mean, like with, with with addictions that people have, and I'm not just talking about drugs or drink. I'm talking about like exercise mm-hmm. or food addictions. Yeah. Like like the, the certainty that so when you eat a particular meal, like I, I'm guilty of this. Like there's meals I love and I, I love eat. Like I, I'm I'm like a lot of people I have. And I know, and I know the knowledge is like, I have habits I do every day over and again. I'm like, I need more variety. But the fact, like, yep. it's the reward you get from it. And then, as we know from any addiction, the more you do, the more you, the more you do that behavior, 
the less you're gonna feel it less. But the, yeah, exactly. The, the the more adaptive resistance you build to it, meaning you have to you have to do more of it, or, or yep. you have to get more of it. So like you know, people with caffeine, like they, they can't have to drink more caffeine. People on like cocaine, they have to get more of it, or they have to take more yep. drug, or alcoholics yep. have to drink more to get the same reward system. Sorry, mm-hmm. keep going. It's just I'm just thinking to myself. We yeah. we already got the day two. I like the aerobic, but like this, this what we're talking about right now is definitely future podcast material. When I get through the reckoning, we're definitely going through that baby. Yeah. And this is the reckoning to me. Like, this is it. And the reckoning is the mechanisms of this, mm. which I just don't think these other guys are actually talking about, quite honestly. With all due respect to them, I don't know if they're appreciating what's actually happening under the hood as accurately as they could. Uh, it's ha, like, I think ha, they're, where, they're where, in the right direction here. Where, yeah. where, where, like, where did this fascination, and then also who've been the biggest influences on, on the dopamine sort of research you've done? Like, so where, where, what, what, what did that start? Did it come from, like, did, like what triggered this, like, all right, I want to study your brain, and then, like, like holy shit, this, yeah. dop- this dopamine rabbit hole? Like, like, who's been a big influence? What materials are you reading on that, studying and So the, the first time I got exposed to this was at uh, Postural Restoration Institute's mm. interdisciplinary integration four years ago. And, uh, and, and the topic for that particular conference was the overdriven or overextended individual and like basically what drives them. And, uh, and, and that's where uh, a few speakers started talking about dopamine and rewards and habit formation and all this stuff. And, and I was like, of all the topics that I've been exposed to from PRI, this topic is the most interesting one. Yeah. And, you know, the first book that I, I you know, I, I can remember like going through Ron's references for that and, and the dopaminergic mind, uh, by Previc was the first one I picked up okay. and I start reading this thing and I'm like, Holy shit. Like this, this explains so much of what I'm seeing in people, in myself, in, it, it probably in of, it, it probably yeah. gave, it gave you a lot of appreciation for like the early stages of your life, which you spoke about, you know, on the previous podcast with you know the, yeah. the drug addiction and whatever else. Mm-hmm. And then another big book for me was uh, the um, the Master and His Emissary mm. by um, Ian McGilchrist, and and you know it just I'm trying to think of of other areas that I I went into from there. Well, polyvagal theory. I mean, all of these these major like big hitter kind of neuro books, and and um, you know, I just start like thinking about this and putting it together. The Power of Habit is also a really good book on yeah, that front. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very easy to read one, but you know, it, and and then I, I think that that On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins is a book that if if people have not read that book, that book is unique that man's take on the brain and the cortex is, is a game changer in terms of an overall model that you can use to think about these things from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I, you know, putting a lot of those things together is, is really kind of what, what has spurred me on with this stuff and, and just sort of, and also like looking at at a lot of like primary, primary source literature too. Like I, I wrote an article that was on Simply Faster that, uh, that really I, I looked at as like this is, you know, I've written a lot of articles that I look at as, as kind of like user-friendly or for regular people to read. And I, I wrote that one as I would write a paper in academia. Yeah. Like I, there was the no holds barred. Like this is, this is an academic paper. And, and it just deals with, with fatigue 
and neurotransmitters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you can see like it, it's just, it's just mechanisms, mechanisms, mechanisms. I'll put that in, I'll put in, that in the that. show notes. Yeah. Uh, so look, I, I just think that, that if you, if you want to talk why variation works for those individuals, cause I, I agree. I think it does. It, it's because of the connections between the cortex and the motor system, which are different in a human being compared to any other animal on this planet. Like our, our cortex assumed the wiring that typically goes from the basal ganglia to the spinal cord that takes place in, in other mammals, where we rewired our nervous system so that our cortex has a lot more of those uh, origin nerves that, that go to the body. So that we, we use our cortex to both interpret information that's coming in from our sensory system mm. as well as command motor actions. Whereas other animals, like a basal ganglia is a more automatic part of our brain. Mm-hmm. And so their actions are going to be much more stimulus response without necessarily a cognitive uh, element put into those actions. Uh, you know, in particular reptiles, like I don't think reptiles are angry necessarily when they're biting you there. It's just like, you know, they, they have a, a stimulus come in, their brain interprets it a certain way and they have like an, an automaton type response to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, mammals have more of an emotional response, like bears growl at you, uh, before they maul you, but human beings have the ability, like bears aren't looking back and like grading themselves on how well they killed the salmon after the fact. Yeah. You know, we, on the other hand, are, are having this incredible cognitive reflection over how well we did something like we're grading it. We're interpreting it. We're comparing it to others We're we're giving a value judgment to ourselves based yeah. on, on those things. So we're all caught up with a cortex and motor responses and, and I don't, th- and we're the only animal that really does that. Yeah. And I don't think we know what to do with that yet from number one, a sports science standpoint, but more importantly, just as an organism, mm-hmm. you well, know, it's, like, it's, it's one of the great curses of, of our, of the higher structures of our brain in that it can be our greatest friend, but it also can be our greatest foe yeah. in, in how we determine to, to use those, uh, those higher structures and those as higher levels of intelligence, because it's kind of like why zebras don't get ulcers. I mean, the, the whole idea is that, like while this brain of ours can invent, you know, uh, technologies like like we're on right now. Uh, you know, you're on a phone, I'm on a laptop. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're half a world apart, and yet we can hear each other perfectly and have such a, a deep conversation. Um, but then at the same time, the same brain can also be the same brain that brings like previous behaviors from our past in into the present, and we can start yeah. having a stress response to that and, and judging ourselves. Or we can like the, the example I always love to use is we can start stressing about stuff that we're predicting the future that will never happen. Like something that's never, we're just completely imagining that this could happen. Mm-hmm. It's never going to happen. And we brought it into the present. We're having a stress response. So like it, it, it is the, the great paradox of our brain. Like while it's a, it's, it's such a double-edged sword, but it seems to me like nearly everything that and, is so profound is a double-edged sword, like insulin, blue light exposure, the brain, it's like these double-edged swords, yeah. if you use them well, you know, they can be, it's, it's like we spoke about in the first episode about uh, the addict brain. I mean, you can use that bad boy for so many good things, but it can also yep. actually destroy it at the same time. So, you know, just before I, I kind of forget to include this in the discussion, because I always, I always think back when we're done with these things and I'm like, ah, I missed this critical thing. 
you know, the like our cortex is a prediction engine. Oh, nice. And you know, the more that you do something, the more those predictions lead to the outcome. Okay, so and and again, like this is a difference maker in a human brain compared to any other animal's brain. Our cortex desperately wants its predictions to be accurate. Mm. Okay, and it is also driving a tremendous number of our motor responses. So it's it's kind of like uh, I'm commanding my hand and I move my hand so that it's up in front of my nose, and my prediction is that I will see that hand. And, and so it's almost like, is it the prediction, the, the desire to satisfy the prediction yeah. that drives the motor response? You know, that, that's a fair question to actually ask. So if you're thinking about an athlete that like a Shaco might work with, okay, that athlete has been squatting, bench pressing, and deadlifting so much that as soon as they touch a specific weight, their brain is already making a prediction because it's felt that weight so many times. Yeah. And does the motor outcome match the prediction that's actually taking place? What is, is, is this the whole concept then of Bernstein's repetition without repetition like to, to, so that you can keep evolving, if you like, in terms of development? So like he was kind of like, like – so again, like I suppose if we took the, sh- the Shaco example, like you're still doing a squat by setup, but he's putting these minute variations in it. Yes, so that you can't predict it as well. Yes, exactly. And That's so exactly it. It, 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 opens like, up, it opens up your degrees of freedom. It makes you more adaptable. 100%. Your outcome, you're not sure about. So you're actually – you're, you're revving up the sensory side of your brain because there's an error going on. Mm. It hasn't quite felt this before. And, and I suppose the fact that, that it's only a slight variation, that the stress response isn't so overwhelming to the brain that it's willing to fi- Correct. Fi- figure, out this, yeah, figure out this problem. That's it, man. That, that's, I think that is ultimately what is under the hood that's really driving this stuff mm. is I need an error message to kind of pop up on some level, just, a, just some level, so that you don't quite know what to expect as the outcome. So that we can actually just let you search for it and figure it out and go get it without bias potentially limiting you. Yeah. Because that bias, when you feel something that you know you haven't gotten before, uh, you're going to probably uh, not get it. You know, and, and I can just tell you, like, there's some days where I pick up weight. Like, it could be the same barbell that I picked up last week. And today, for whatever reason, like... You know, let's say I'm bench pressing and it's like a warm up set and I've got 100 kilos on the bar and it just feels like an empty bar. It's like there's almost an error message like this doesn't even feel right. This is a joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and then it's sort of like gravity's off well, today. It's not me. It's gravity. Yeah. It, it's like, well, let's put on more. And then it's like, I don't even know what this is going to feel like. And then I touch this thing. And it just doesn't feel like it normally should have felt like. Mm. And I, I kind of know that I'm going to – or it's like, a, it's like what's going to happen here today? Those are the days where I PR uh, versus the other days where it's like, oh, this feels heavy. You know? And my prediction equipment is already – it's like I know what this feels like. Oh, God. And it's but like, like but, but if you really start thinking about like the factors that could influence like that input, I mean nutrition, sleep, and what's going on at cellular level, and then how are how are neurotransmitters communicating given the environment that they're that they're currently in because of 
because of a decision you made the, the evening before to stay up and watch Netflix and get more blue light exposure or because you missed a meal yeah. or because you had a fucking argument with someone or you had a thought in your head about some random thing that like you could just keep going and going and, and this is what I was kind of, uh, talking about earlier on about like you know your presentation that you're going to do a PRI like what are you just going to do a simple thing like the squat I was, that's why I was joking because I was like because I'm, yeah. I'm the very same as you and people are like you know when people say oh just keep it simple I'm like no and, and, and I'm sorry but it's, that's not how we evolve we keep going down with rabbit holes and, and trying to we, yeah. we're trying to understand more complex things so like mm-hmm. you know like, keep like when people just always say keep it simple like again there's a time and place for everyone, but when people just say I'm like no I want complex I want like the, I want the deep shit like this yeah because I, I think it actually matters because once you know how yes. something works yes it does matter it's so much easier it's just unbelievably like a million times easier to replicate that thing again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, I don't know if you want to, if there's any more you want to add to that, but so we were just, uh, just going back to triphasic there. All right. So, you know, we, we, we went down this, I, what I think is the, the good stuff, these, these rabbit holes that we tend to get into. Yeah. But, um, I'm all for the rabbit holes. You know, let's uh, let's let's sort of dive into into some of the the mechanisms of post-activation potentiation, and because uh, you know, I thought, I feel like when I was a professor at Springfield, almost every every master's thesis committee I was on, somebody was was like researching something having to do with with uh, post-activation potentiation, and so I, I had to read a lot of manuscripts on this and, and go through a lot of the uh, these these um, lit reviews on the topic. And every time I looked through it, it seemed to have really great results. Um, so it's kind of like, uh, number one, like it's, it's always, it's rare to see something like fairly consistently have a level of, of, uh, significance in, in statistical findings. And, and that seems to be something that, that is fairly true of PAP. And then I always find the mechanisms much more interesting than, than the results. Like I'm, I'm more of a mechanisms discussion section kind of guy versus just the data um and and this notion of uh of calcium basically being the the big driver of this Mm, stuff mm. and so it's it it kind of goes back to to rate of force development and and how difficult it is to improve things that involve a high amount of force that are executed in a very short amount of time and it seems as though one of the big limiting factors is from the chemistry side of things, where, you know, with any, any kind of muscular action, you're going to go through the transmembrane action potential, which is going to involve the nerve releasing acetylcholine and having uh, an ionic change and seeing sodium ions flood into the muscle cell through the T-tubules and at the base of the T-tubules, you'll have the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is the storehouse for calcium ions. And when the sodium ions change the charge of the cell to a, a critical threshold level, the, the, T2, the, the, the sarcoplasmic reticulum will open its calcium channels so that calcium can move into the cell, bind to troponin, cause tropomyosin to shift out of the way mm-hmm. so that the... Um, the, the uh, actin binding sites are now exposed for myosin globular heads to be able to attach to to perform power stroke upon. Troponin, um, C, tr- troponin C it attaches to, just so we know. 
Yep, yep. There's a couple of troponin binding sites, but it's that calcium binding site on the troponin molecule mm-hmm. that's the critical spot. But it's it's just a question of like how how much time do you have to actually cause these transmembrane action potentials when you're doing something really fast and and it's not a lot of time. So you're you're potentially the amount of protein uh, contractile protein behavior that's taking place between, you know, I want the most amount of myosin globular heads attached to the most amount of actin binding sites to be able to create the highest level of force. Uh, but that's going to be dependent upon how much of this tropomyosin shield is moved out of the way of those binding sites. Yeah, yeah. And that's a calcium-dependent phenomenon. So I so, can... So how, 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 yep. how fast calcium, the rate of... of the how fast calcium can get into the uh, in around the myofilaments is is going to be a key determinant here, and maybe not so much how fast, but how much. What's the magnitude of the total amount of calcium that's present in this contractile protein part of the cell? Well, would it not depend? Um, would, would it not? Would it also not be maybe dependent on the activity in terms? Let's say if it was more of a maximal strength effort. Maybe that might be more down to like the, the, the amount, whereas it was more velocity dependent, would have come down maybe to the rate of calcium input. Well, I think this brings us right to the critical element of why PAP seems to work. And okay. it's because I do a, a, an activity that's high force that takes a greater amount of time mm-hmm. uh, prior to doing my high rate of force development activity. So this high force, long duration activity and, and you know we're talking relatively speaking high duration um it gives me more time to have more transmembrane action potentials so that i have this enormous bolus of calcium present in the intracellular environment where contractile proteins reside and it takes time to re-sequester that calcium after you're done performing uh these activities so I'm going to have this calcium lingering in the part of the cell where the actin and the myosin, the troponin and the tropomyosin are, are, are present. And if I'm able to do a, like a high, high rate of force development activity during this, yeah. this time period where I have this elevated calcium level yeah. in that part of the cell, I can potentially get more contractile protein interactions mm-hmm. which should make that a more put more force in the rate of force development activity essentially because yeah. yeah. there's more calcium uh, in, in around the binding sites and in between actinomycin that 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 were already released from the heavy effort which then yeah uh, will help potentiate the subsequent effort so it's just basically that the saturation of calcium that's 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 a residual of the, yeah. of the heavy effort um, is leading to the ability then to be able to produce more power output down on a subsequent explosive effort after the heavy effort. So that, yeah. that's the idea, yeah. And you know, I, I think that you just see it like a by like that. I think the area where you haven't seen the the literature go in is whether or not this is a bidirectional uh, enhancement process. Do the high do, like if I can get you to do rate of force development activities with more force in the rate of force development. Will that positively feed back into the longer duration, you know, strength activity? Mm, mm. And, and, and I think that it might, you know, it's 
these things are always a balance between fatigue and potentiation. Yeah. You know, sometimes the the strength activity can fatigue the system too much so that you can't ex- you can't demonstrate an improvement in the rate of force development activity. Um, so you have to be very careful on that front. Um, That's where it, really, you know, it becomes like an N and one, really, isn't like because the the rest totally of, the rest of let's say me just take me and you as an example. Like if we were doing, you know, a complex of just a heavy squat to squat jump. Like the rest period, let's say if we take the same one, it might be completely in, 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 inefficient for you, but perfect for me. Yeah. Or vice versa. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the case. Um, so it, it, it's like I think that being able to measure these things is probably important, and and I think that that what you can potentially because if you don't have like a, a jump mat present or um, you know something that's capable of measuring the vertical jump, you can always look at at what's happening with the squat or the the strength activity, because you know what I'm seeing most of the time is that people get a little bit stronger on sets two and three as compared to set one. Um, you know, mm-hmm. set one is oftentimes like not your best, best demonstration in this protocol. It seems like it should be, but I, I usually set three is where people are at their absolute best. And then you're kind of hanging on for dear life on sets four and five. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that the mechanism is, is a powerful one and, you know, where I was kind of going with this idea of it being potentially bi-directional of the rate of force development, uh, potentially enhancing the strength activity, it, there's, there's kind of a little known physiology piece. I didn't even talk about it in, in Mass 2, but it's called the CATCH principle, uh, K-A-T-C-H. And, and I think that you're going to see this pop up in newer research as well. Um, that deals with like epigenetic trends with, with strength and hypertrophy training. But the catch principle says that when a muscle vibrates at a new level of frequency, there will be an ability for that muscle to re-vibrate at that same frequency in the future. It's almost like remembering, a, it's like, it's funny, like, like muscles really are, are acting, acting through vibration and sound as much as anything. Um, it's, it's like they play a new song, so to speak. You know, the first time that you produce a certain level of force, like, the, you know, you, you squat a new PR. Your muscles had to vibrate at a different frequency to be able to accomplish that. And it's, it's like kind of the first time that you've ever heard that song from an intracellular perspective. Um, but you have a chance of, like, remembering that song in the future, and it's probably exactly the same thing for rate of force development kinds of stuff. Uh, so it's, it's like you're acquiring new memories at the cellular level. Like we were talking about prediction mm, at the level mm, of the brain. Mm. But it's, you know, the, the memory at the cellular level is, is really driven through the, the, the slight alterations that we put on the genome from like, like methylation mechanisms mm-hmm. that, that really drive how epigenetics works. Just, just, just a little thing on that, like on cellular memory. I mean, the, I don't know if you've read stuff from like Lynn McTaggart or another guy called Rupert Sheldrake, and he talks about morphogenetic fields. So, like, it's kind of like these non in, in non genetic inheritive like mechanisms of memory that that like uh, it's not necessarily down to DNA or heritage. It's like a morphogenetic type thing, and, and like they've spoken about this that like it happens at the cellular level too, like that. 
that seems to be like it's like kind of like homeopathy they talk about this molecular memory that can be taken from like medicine and, and uh, it's like it's sort of rabbit holes but it's just made me think of that like that they, there could be some like morphogenetic memory field around certain things in terms of the certainty context we're talking about mm-hmm yeah I, I haven't heard that that particular term morphogenetics but it it, it sounds we're, we're basically using tiny proteins that are, are kind of the lattice work that, mm. that makes the physical structure of the double helix that the nucleic acids uh, fit themselves into. Yeah. And when I'm able to, to like add alcohol groups to those, those, those lattice work proteins, I'm, I'm able to essentially mostly turn genes off so that I can enhance other genes. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like just crazy sorts of levels of science that that gets into. But, but kind of long story short, like I'm able to re-access in a faster way genes that are going to code for specific proteins. And, and look, like we're probably going to be able to build almost different variants of, of actin and myosin that are capable of vibrating in different ways that is, is, and that vibration frequency is potentially going to alter the kinds of force that we're able to create as the output. I think, I think that's ultimately kind of the direction that this stuff goes in is, is sort of like, that's, that's where it really lives at the, at the depth of the mechanistic front. And, and I just think that, that that triphasic approach is is potentially a great way to, to accomplish that because I think that where people have looked at PAP is they've looked at the direct effects of calcium on troponin, mm-hmm. but what people forget about is that calcium is also an agent of being able to break down uh, cytoskeletons. Like calcium is a, a fairly caustic uh, ion, like it really does disrupt physically like the properties that that put together proteins. So you're going to have to break these things down in, in order to be able to build them differently in the aftermath. You know, that's, that's how we rewire uh, nervous systems ultimately is I, I change the amount of calcium that's able to move into neurons and that, that calcium is going to break down the, the, um, the dendritic side of a neuron. And that way I can basically remodel the neuron so that it's capable of becoming larger and a different shape, so that it's able to receive more, uh, more, more neurotransmitter coming from the axonal side of the previous neuron. Uh, so all of these remodeling things at a cellular level tend to be driven by calcium. Mm-hmm. So I just look at calcium as being the, the real king in terms of changing expressions of strength and power, both in an acute standpoint and from an adaptation standpoint and kind of taking someone in a more long-term manner towards a, the ability to express things that they previously weren't able to. That's all great stuff, man. So moving on then from triphasic, we get into this uh, stimulation day, which is uh, another new addition from Mass One. What Obviously, you know, you spoke about in, in part one of this series about the... the um, the influence of uh, Valence Etkin and, and, and Roman Foreman on um, mm-hmm. Mass 2. Um, so, like, the setup of the week obviously kind of was influenced by their sort of methodology. But 
why did you feel it was important to include the simulation day and, and again, maybe just run us through it and, and what uh, what it entails in phase one? You know, I'll go back to that statement, the same but different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, during all of these phases, you're going to experience that, that statement over and over again. Phase one is kind of, in large part, how well can you deal with 15 reps? And, and it's like 15 reps coming at you in three different ways. Um, you know, day one with the 30-30 is the lightest of all the training days. But it's, it's 15 reps. It's kind of like, can you deal with 15 reps coming at you relentlessly in a, in a manner that's going to challenge uh, your, your cardiovascular system your, and also your, your local muscular system from the perspective more in the way of like metabolic tolerance? Uh, and, and day three, the stim day, is going to challenge your system from the perspective of of, a, of the heaviest version of dealing with 15 reps. Um, you know, what is, I love that you brought up DB Hammer because I think about some of the stuff that he, he wrote quite a bit actually. And, and one of the areas that he talks about is peak versus pinnacle. And I don't, I don't know if you've, you've kind of looked at that stuff or talked to other people that, that, that have mentioned that topic before. No, I haven't. But so, so he would say that, um, and I hope I don't get them backwards here, but uh, peak versus pinnacle is the easiest way to think about this is a starting pitcher in baseball versus a closer in baseball where the starter can't necessarily throw at like 99% of his, his absolute velocity on every single pitch. Otherwise, he's never going to be able to make it through the whole, the whole game. Versus you bring in the closer, and the closer is probably going to throw somewhere between like 15 and 40 pitches. So the closer can, can absolutely unleash. So the, the starting pitcher would need to be able to demonstrate what, what D.B. Hammer would call peak capabilities. And the closer would have to be able to demonstrate pinnacle capabilities. Mm. Um, and, and that training should reflect that to some degree. Where it's kind of like if you're doing peak-based training, that's like repeat sprint ability in my mind. Uh, like you're probably not going to be running uh, at 99% of your maximum velocity. You might be 90% of your maximum velocity, but you're going to have to do this over and over and over and over again. And to me, the 30-30 is just like kind of more in the realm of a peak version of training. And the stem day is much more in the version of, of pinnacle version of training. Uh, like you can have as much rest as you want on all of these exercises on the, the stem day. But I want to see what's the greatest amount of weight that you can use for three sets of 15 for all of the exercises that are in that day. Um, and, and I'll tell you, the stem day in many ways is like, uh, it probably, it, it's nowhere near fitting into like Val Nesedkin's version of a stim day because a stim day should almost be easy. Like I'm, I'm kind of cheating by using that name here because that stim day is, especially in phase one is like the, the hidden assassin in the program. Yeah. And, and like, like when I, when I saw it, I was like, well, three fifteen, and you're still like doing like a squat in the bench or a deadlift in the bench or, um, and I was, uh, I was out, but I suppose the one sort of 
you know, trade-off you made on this was uh, you, you said rest as long as you want or as long as you, you needed to feel, which which yep. is which is a big diversion from a usual Pat Davidson protocol because you're usually very particular about manipulating time in programs. So it was one sort yeah. of it was one sort of little compensation or trade-off you were willing to make. Oh yeah, um, and and look, like if I'm doing that stim day, like that thing takes me about an hour and a half, hour forty minutes. Like that's that's not a quick one. Um, so it's, it's, it's a pretty brutal workout. Like, I think there's a couple of like hidden evil parts of this program. Uh, like the single foot hops and the warm up for, uh, for STEM day are terrible. Mm. Like when you have to do like 45 up to 55 seconds of single foot lateral hops going back and forth. I mean, you just want to like shoot yourself by the end of that thing. Serious it, quad, serious quad burn. It is unbelievable. Mm. <laughs> it's like, but it's kind of like, I think that's an important thing to put in there you know I've, I've listened to enough joel jameson and just thinking about like uh like low intensity plyometrics as yeah. being tremendous injury prevention things yeah. and like tissue tolerance to me the stim day is a tissue day uh I, I really want to to see your ability to handle like both capacity and output in, in that particular day it's uh, funny it's funny you mentioned actually the the low intensity aerobics um like from Joel, because only recently now I've really started to utilize those within my programs, and that's exactly why I use them for, uh, like for basically like they're like a, uh, what's the one I'm trying to say? Like they're they're a double win in, in terms of you're getting an aerobic development benefit from them, but you're also getting some great condition for the tissues, which which then will you know be a foundation for more intense plyometrics to come on the program. So it's only lately yep. I, I've, I've been using them. I used to. Always put them in like as an ESD, as in like his explosive his explosive repeats or his aerobic plyometrics after say the lifting portion of a program. But more lately, I've been putting them in like in let's say like that first block of training, that more general physical preparation block. I've actually been putting them in as my primary aerobic um, piece as well, and um, mm. like more extensive plyometrics. Um, but I, I like uh, I see them as a as a as a double win in terms of you're you're both getting. Uh, aerobic development um, benefits from, and you're also getting that sort of uh, developing that tissue tolerance. So I, I, I extensively use both explosive uh, repeats and the aerobic plyometrics from Joel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think they're they're it's super. It's like it's a good. I think it's a great warm up. It's 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 a it just kills a lot of birds mm. with with one stone, and um, and it's 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 also like it's just harder than you think. Like it's it's just sounds yeah. so easy. And then you go to do it, and you're like, "Oh my God, I'm dying here." So those, I just look at those tissues as like, well, clearly these tissues are not highly trained. If they can't handle like, you know, less than a minute of just hopping back and forth, like, I feel like if I was a, a little kid, I probably could have done stuff like that forever. Like, but but now it's like, man, I haven't done something like this in a while. I'm not particularly good at this. I can see where people might get injured if they're on their feet for a while in a game and they've done a lot of reps, there's probably a lot of fatigue that's going on underneath the surface. Pat, I'm going to wrap up here soon because I have to go, but just one, one thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go on this one is, and I meant to ask, and I'm just actually bringing you back here to the triphasic day. Why do you do a glycolytic one? That's a great question. I've had a few people ask me that one. And, and what you probably notice in the book is that there's no explanation given as to why it's, it's done. And, um, and, and I'll, I'll say this, this is like one of the few times, like when I'm going anecdotal and in particular, if I'm writing something down, I'm not going to acknowledge that it's anecdotal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, it's like, uh, maybe people aren't going to notice this, 
But a lot of people have noticed that there's no explanation for that. And, and I'll, I'll, here's, the, here's the reason. It, it's, it's because, you know, we used to use triphasic uh, training at Springfield College with the, the, uh, the strongman, strongman competitive yeah. team. And I can remember there was, there was one, one training day. It was kind of in the spring. And, uh, and I just felt like guys were getting lazy in their warmups. You know, it's like I had these, these, these big movement prep warmups and like, I, I really, I liked them. You know what I mean? I thought it was very triplanar and very smart and all that kind of stuff. But I, I remember looking around and I'd see guys just kind of, I mean, go, going go, through the motions does the motions, not even yeah. do it justice. Yeah, like yeah. they were, they were just being sacks of shit with this warmup. And I was like, I just was like, hold up everybody on the line and uh and we ended up running three 300 yard shuttles that day with with two minutes rest in between them and um and it set it set a totally different tone for that training session Mm. and we went downstairs and and you know that was the first night that i saw zach hadge deadlift with seven plates on the bar and um i mean it was it was a wild environment that that created like and, um, and, and I remember he came up to me, he was like, coach, we have to do that again before we do this workout. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm fine with that. And, um, and, and you know what it did was it actually saved a lot of time on those training days because I just lined people up on the line. We're running these 300 yard shuttles. I, I made it down to two. And then I think eventually kind of like one, cause I didn't want to completely crush people. But, uh, you know, it, it seemed to just be a complete wake-up call. Like, it's a slap in the face. It's like somebody threw hot coffee on you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, listen, it's time to go. Like, it's time to do some serious work and to get your mind in a place where you're going to have to accept uh, some very uncomfortable situations. And that's my explanation, quite honestly, is that it just – it sucks, but it wakes you up. It just takes you from kind of going through the motions – and it immediately gets you very present in the here and now uh, for, for what's about to come. Because I need you to be very focused and very attentive for that workout. And I want you to be kind of fired up. Yeah, it was just it was one thing I remember reading. I was like, I suppose I found it a bit odd given that, like, you know, it was on the A-Lactic aerobic day. And it was like, like a Linux warm-up. So it was, it was a question I meant to ask. But, hey, listen, for today, let's let's wrap it there, right? And we'll pick up on okay. the 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 Cajun because I really I I just love I I think that's the sneaky bastard of the whole program that and uh, that and when we get to phase three and when we introduce people to the deuce just for people listening right now write down this the deuce because that's gonna come back and haunt us so I think you know if I could just very quickly just say one thing and then I'll, I'll let you go like uh, the way that I kind of view glycolytic stuff in a good program is like I can view a program and I like it because you brought up the Cajun. Uh, I kind of view the, the a program design as almost like making a stew, mm. and a stew is really boring if you don't put a little spice in it. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I just think glycolytic work is like the spice that you yeah. put into a stew. If there's too much, you completely ruin the flavor. But without any, it's bland. Yeah, yeah. I think I think actually you do 
write something like along those lines in the book if I if I recall one of the one of the lines in one of the paragraphs that you, you do met you like you you actually state it like that like this glycolytic work is a little bit of spice or else or else you said it to me in a previous podcast that we done that glycolytic work is just yeah spice. so I'm just I'm just trying to add a little flavor before people go in and eat the main dish there that's great so yeah we'll definitely pick it up when we get to Kajan and then we'll we'll get into phase two and three and obviously phase four and phase phase four is a uh, quite different actually i like the way you really kind of not, not that you change it drastically again we go back to this sort of same but different but you, there is quite of a change up in comparison to the the first three first three phases so uh, i'm looking forward to talking more about that but for now uh for everyone listening we will of course are going to have mr davison back on he's going to probably be on like every month for the rest of my life as long as we live and as long as like civilization is around so uh pat thanks a million for today thank you robbie all right, and we're going to wrap it up here, guys. I'll talk to you all soon. Take care. Stay, uh, take care. Be well. And as I say at the end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.